you know, if you're going to try and optimize your health, you're going to want to talk to a biohacker, right? Maybe not. We're going to talk to an ex-biohacker on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for one know, for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting feet first, you know, those things that are your foundation at the end of your legs. Um, we break down the propaganda, the mythology, and sometimes the flat-out lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or play or hike or do yoga or CrossFit or, oh my God, the millions of things people can do on their feet and to do that enjoyably and efficiently and effectively and did I say enjoyably? I know I did. It's a trick question. Because look, um, if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep it up anyway. So find something you enjoy. And hopefully we can help you do that. I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the Movement Movement. We call it that because we're creating a movement that involves you. It's easy. I'll tell you how in a second about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do. And the movement part, that first part, um, the way you can get involved is just go to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You don't have to join anything. There's no secret handshake. There's no money. It's just, that's the domain that I got where you can find all the previous episodes, all the ways you can engage with us on social media, basically a link to everywhere that we are. Um, and the gist of course is, you know, find the previous episodes and like and share and give us a review and thumb up and hit the bell icon on YouTube and all those things you know how to do. I mean, in short, if you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. So let us get started. Nick, do me a favor, tell people who you are and what you do. And then we're going to talk about your life as an ex-biohacker. Stephen, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. My name is Nick Urban. I am an ex-biohacker, as you mentioned. And for those who don't know, Biohacking is the art and science of changing your external environment and your internal environment. And I help curious high achievers find the little known answers and solutions to improve their health, performance, and quality of life. And I began back in high school when people would turn to me to try and figure out why what they were doing wasn't working and some of the alternative solutions that they couldn't find elsewhere how to implement those into their lives. And many of them came across biohacking and I was in that group as well. I thought that there's lots of little things you can do, little hacks that make a big difference. And indeed that's true. But then at some point, just like a hack on a computer, eventually there's long-term repercussions. Those hacks morph and there's unintended side effects and consequences. And if you study the ancient practices of Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, hermetic principles, all of these, I noticed a concept called vitalism emerging, where it's working with the more subtle things that are behind matter. And when you work with those, you're able to get longer lasting outcomes that are more effective and easier ultimately. Okay, cool. Thank you. That was way more than I was expecting, which is great. So, um, uh, I want to uh, come back to a couple of things you said and um, address them in a couple different ways. But I'm going to start by asking this question. Do you mind if I'm obnoxious and really poke the bear, if you will? Definitely. Okay, cool. So um, you described biohacking as the art and science of fill in blank. Um, let's add the art, science, and pseudoscience of, because um, there's a lot of that. I was at a biohacking event in the past. I'm not going to say how long ago, because I don't want to give away which one it was, and I've been to a bunch of them, where I met some people who actually are publishers in that world. And they, I don't know how it happened, but in the conversation, they said, yeah, 95% of the things in this room are complete placebos. 
And so let's start there with what's your take on, and I'm curious, you said some of these hacks actually do work. I'm curious about what things you think do work and what things you think are placebos. And again, my warning, I may suggest that things that you think do work may be placebos or may work for reasons different than what people say. Yes. I could be wrong. You might just, you know, we might be on the same page on this. We haven't talked about this, but it may be that um, we got some placebo things going on. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you that with that. And there is so much in this world and really anything in the health and wellness and performance world that is placebo has a very strong element of pseudoscience. So I'm in agreement with you there. And I think some of the things that I notice immediate and profound effects for from on the biohacking side would be things like certain nootropics. Like it's like you, if you take caffeine, most people feel that if you've never taken caffeine before, and there's other related compounds you can take that create a very immediate and noticeable effect. And there's a lot of technologies. I actually have some behind me, like quantum technologies that it's you can That's use funny. you Sorry. can use surrogate endpoints and biomarkers and see how that influences physiological processes like heart rate, heart rate variability, brainwave coherence. And you can see how some of them impact that, but it's very hard to attribute it to anything more than the placebo. Right. And as like the studies have shown, placebo and nocebo, the opposite end, where yeah. you believe something won't work, are among the strongest effects in all of medicine. So, you know, it's funny. So I like to half half jokingly say that I'm immune to placebos. And I say that because there were a number of things in the days when I was um, less rigid in my, or less um, clear in my thinking, let's say, ah, that's all, that sounds horrible. I, I didn't investigate things that I was being told. And so I was working with some local naturopaths or chiropractors, or whatever, and they would give me various treatments that had no impact on me. And I didn't understand why. And it wasn't until years later when I started investigating these things, I went, oh, because those are placebos. There's nothing actually there, there. So, I mean, I used to joke with a homeopath that I knew. I said, if you guys really wanted to help people, wouldn't you just take all of your various homeopaths homeopathic supplements and put them in a reservoir. I mean, you could just go over there with a eyedropper and just dose the entire reservoir. And they'd look at me and I went, oh, but then you'd be diluting it so much that it would be so powerful. It would kill people, wouldn't it? And then, <laughs> and, um, and that's when they would get mad at me. But I'm going to, in the spirit of being pleasantly obnoxious, I don't know of anything that, well, let me say it this way. I was going to write a book with a friend of mine who was an actual quantum mechanic. He was an actual uh, um, subatomic physicist. And it was going to be called something like a physicist's guide to life in a new age world. And the big argument, the big premise that it started with was people are using the word quantum in ways that have absolutely nothing to do with quantum physics. It's yeah. a great word, but typically the things that people are developing that use that word have nothing to do with anything having to do with quantum effects. Um, and, but to your point, I think, and to your credit, you said, you know, it's quantum devices, but um, you said, you know, these things seemingly are doing something, but we aren't totally sure how. And so there may be placebo effects there. I would argue probably definitely. In fact, um, I gotta, um, you know, I approach a lot of things with a very open mind, but I don't necessarily believe it. In other words, yeah, yeah. I'm from Missouri. I'm the show me state. I mean, I'm not actually from Missouri, but someone gave me a device recently. I'm not going to say what it was. Um, and it just so happened that I had a perfect test case for this healing device. 
And the perfect test case was that I had jumped into Boulder Creek. I'd taken a dive in and slipped and hit a rock with both of my knees and Mm -hmm. it scraped up both of my knees pretty much equivalently. So I said, I'm going to use the device and I'll put put it on one leg and I'll use it for about an hour a day. And what do you think should happen? And they said, oh my God, it's going to heal in like no time. And not only did the leg that was being quote treated not heal any faster, I think it was worse. Mm -hmm. And so I reported that and they said, uh, well, clearly you're thinking got in the way of the device working. And I said, if a thought called, I don't know if it'll work, could interfere with a device that is pressed against my skin, then we got a problem. And I said, you know what, uh, what I don't have to believe in or not believe in for it to have an effect? They said, what? I said, Percocet. <laughs> I said, you know, there's lots of drugs where you can take them and you don't need to believe or not believe anything it's going to knock you on your ass or do whatever it's supposed to do. And so anyway, so that's that's one thing. I just want to throw that quantum thing in there. Second one, one that is not a poking the bear kind of thing. You mentioned that a lot of these things can have uh, long-term unintended consequences. Can you say more about the kind of things that you've seen, those kind of consequences and uh, what you notice? And I'll share one with you after you've done that. Yeah, before we do, I want to keep poking that bear a little bit more because I think that's a really interesting topic that doesn't get enough attention. And one thing is like, yes, humans are very susceptible to placebo, but animals and uh. newborns and really like things like that they don't consciously think the same way us skeptical adults do. They're yes. less immune. So I like to, or they're more immune. So I like to look at and see how it affects them. So maybe you can do some experiments watering like using the special water that the company makes or whatever it is and try watering plants instead of drinking yourself and see compare that to a control which has normal water and well you know no i think that's brilliant and but you know even then so i'll tell you where the human still comes into that equation it's whether they know how to set up the experiment correctly yeah so you know if you're going to do the plant watering thing you don't do it with one plant that's getting watered and one plant that's getting you know watered with the magic water you do it with like 20 plants that are each, you know, that you've divided or more, because as someone who grows plants, um, I have an indoor hydroponic garden. I can tell you some of those things grow better than others under identical conditions. Yeah. So um, it's amazing how badly people set up simple, seemingly simple experiments. Yeah. And then to make it even more comprehensive, if you have the time and resources, you would also want to blind the experimenter to not know which water is which on the plants. But that's a whole nother level. And just for like a simple at home thing, you can try with your quantum devices or whatever they are. Yeah, that's a easy well, one. Um, yeah. My favorite thing on the quantum device kind of stuff is if something uh, lights up, just make another device that just lights up, you know, just do something or if it's something that uh, that has to I mean, this this goes back to this is not just, you know, about biohackers or people who are susceptible to placebo things, this permeates science. So I I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the whole phenomenon around the idea of cold fusion. Were you around for that? A little bit. Well, the gist is some guys at at a university in Arizona, maybe ASU, but I can't remember. They had claimed that they had created fusion at room temperature. I mean, we're still trying to create fusion at, you know, a hundred times the temperature, the sun temperature. So they had claimed that it was happening at room temperature. So this one physicist said to them, so your theory is that using heavy water, which is water where it's a hydrogen isotope, that heavy water is what makes this thing work. 
So the way to test this is by looking for testing a counterfactual. Test something that's the opposite and see what happens. So get rid of the heavy water and just use regular water and see if you get the same results. If you do, then it had nothing to do with the heavy water, yeah. which means that the, this whole thing was fake. Yeah. And so they went, well, it's definitely not. So sure, we'll go test it. And they tested it with regular water and it turned out that it was fake. So, um, you know, this, so this kind of mistaken causality permeates human thinking at every yeah. level from dumb people to the smartest people you've ever met um, who at some point kind of circle around and become dumb again. So yes, that was a very good point that if you can demonstrate that something works on someone who has no idea or an animal, brilliant. But then I guess you've got to you know try to get you out of the equation as well. So that's one. All right. So last one um, from your intro. We're still in your intro. So even the concept of vitalism, I find very interesting because there are, of course, two camps. There's one camp where um, everything is merely material, aka the materialists. And there's a camp where people think there are some unseen forces that do various things that are either difficult or impossible to measure or get measured with dubious devices. So um, I got boy, just give me a flashback. There was a naturopath that I was seeing who had some device that was ostensibly able to tell when I needed some kind of supplement that she was going to recommend. And this worked by her pressing it on various points of my body. And I pointed out to her at one point, everything that you say that I need, right before you said that, you were pressing harder with that device than on the things that I don't need. And she said, oh, well, you know, it's about the interaction and relationship between the patient and the physician. I went, no, I think you were just pressing harder for some reason. It had nothing to do with me. And, but, you know, again, I was willing to try things. So I spent way too much money and took all those supplements and noticed zero difference whatsoever. So again, there's a, wait, sorry, I can't, got to keep doing this. <laughs> Somebody had a device that was like, um, you lie down in this bed and there was these crystals of various kinds that they lit up and pointed them at parts of your body. And, and it was supposed to be this miraculous, magical thing. And after the treatment, um, the person said, so how was that? I said, I don't know. I fell asleep. Well, how'd you feel when you fell asleep? I went, I don't know. I then woke up. I mean, I don't feel in any way different. And um, so it's, anyway, it's fascinating, but back to vitalism. There are, how do I want to put this? There are often not always, often simpler explanations for some of these effects than what many people would like. And sometimes there are explanations that I, that I and other people don't have answers for yet. So I used to do, and I'm ranting on this and I'm going to get it back to you, I swear to God. <laughs> I used to do um, Aikido and Tai Chi. And both of those there are lots and lots of claims about vital forces and chi or ki and how they work, where I was hanging out with people who just wanted to get rid of the mythology and see if this stuff really worked without any of that. And with Aikido in particular, there are things that you do to someone's anatomy that work on everybody and have nothing to do with any magical energy. That I, if you grab my wrist in a particular way and I move in a particular way, it locks up your joints in a way that I can then easily throw you onto the ground. It doesn't require any building up, you know, your chi and your, your key in this case. And I used to get in trouble a lot because the dojo that I went to, that's the way we practiced. I assumed it was like that mm -hmm. everywhere. Then I would go to other dojos when I was traveling and some big black belt would try to move me and he couldn't move me and I could throw him around effortlessly. 
And it then turned out often that that was the guy, the guy, it was his dojo that I was in and people that's, you don't do that. That's not showing respect. Uh My response is I don't care about respect. I just proved that he's full of shit. So, um, and I'm not trying to prove that it was like, I just demonstrated that by accident because I didn't know any better. Now, at the same time, I met a Chinese Qigong guy who is my last story, I promise for now, who I saw a documentary with him where it looked like he was electrocuting the people that touched him. And more, it looked completely fake. It looked like they were just throwing themselves into the air and bouncing off the walls and looked completely fake. It turned out he uh, he got brought to America. I got to meet him with about 20 other people in a room. And he's puts his hands about six inches apart from each other and is saying through the translator that he's just sending this electrical current back and forth between his hands. And he motions for me to come up and feel it. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, crap, I'm going to not feel anything. And I'm just going to make him look like an idiot because, you know, I've done things like this and there's nothing, there's no there there. Okay. So I move my hand from above his two hands into the middle of his two hands. And it felt like I was getting electrocuted. I didn't bounce off the walls. I didn't do things that looked insane, but I literally felt like if I stuck my, if I grabbed a, a uh, electrical fence or whatever that word is that I'm looking for, mm. uh, or, you know, put my finger in a socket by accident, which yes, I've done. And I was like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me try this again. And I tried it again by moving my hand into his hands from a different direction. And each time now, this was a good 25 years ago. If it happened now, sadly, he's dead. Maybe I would perceive it differently. But at the time and to this day, I have no idea what happened. Yeah. Maybe there's a there there. Interestingly, none of his students could replicate what he was doing. So, but I'm willing to, you know, suspend disbelief and say, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've experienced some things that I can't explain, but I don't have the opportunity to reinvestigate them now. So anyway, that was a long tangent from vitalism where, you know, there are things that like in acupuncture where you don't need to necessarily, well, there are things where that story ha- doesn't necessarily hold up, but it may be pointing to something that we just don't understand yet that may still be materialistic, but we don't understand it. So I'm, I'm just yeah. intrigued. I guess where that was a long tirade for, I find that one interesting, but it's one of the really fun places to go. Let's see if we can really investigate this. Let's see if we can find a counterfactual. Let's see if we can find a way of controlling this. Let's see if we can find a way to remove extraneous factors that uh, really put it to the test. And so with that, can you, can you tell me any of the things that you think of that involve vital force stuff that we might want to take a look at? Sure. Well, the first thing that I want to comment on is that you're right in this world, there's the two camps, there's the materialist and there's the vitalist, like life force energy type. And there's a huge divide between them and very few people want to explore and challenge each other's ideas because it's more of like an attack on one or the other and saying like, oh, they're totally wrong or we're totally right, whatever it is. So I love the discussions where you're able to actually like say, hmm, what if you do this and think about that and having those. Well, look, this is one of the reasons that I like you is that um, while there are certain things that you believe you are one of the few people that I've met who's willing to go, okay, wait, hold on. Let me take a look at that when given the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. One thing like uh, the Qigong practice you mentioned in Tai Chi, that made me think of a exercise that I was given at one point where you take your hands, you rub them together for 30 seconds or something, and then you separate your hands and you close your eyes and you bring them to- together and don't touch them, but then bring them back apart and go and do that a handful of times. And if you 
do it right and you tune in, you can actually like start to feel like the, I don't know the exact word, the presence of your other hand, like almost like a, a field of some sorts. Once you get your hands very close together, but not quite touching. So that's when you can try at some point and see. Well, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting thing. The confounds on that are vast. Oh, not yeah. The least of which being that, you know, you know where your hands are roughly. And so that's an easy one to then imagine things. But, you know, there's an easier thing to do with your hand that I find really fun. Like if you close your eyes and pay attention to the sensations in your left hand, for example, and just kind of feel where they start and stop around, you know, with your fingers. And then you open your eyes and look at your fingers it seems like the sensations you were feeling don't match with what where you're looking. Like it seems like they extend further out. And so that's an interesting thing. What does it mean? Uh, um, I don't have an idea, but it's an interesting phenomenon that's easily repro- reproducible. Or even more interesting are people who have been have uh, a limb that's been amputated. And have you seen the mirror experiments to get them to get rid of phantom limb pain? No. Ooh, look this one up. Look up Phantom Limb Pain Mirror on YouTube someday. So mm-hmm. I don't know, the guy who figured this out, it was someone, um, I think he was working with someone who had either a hand or an arm amputated, okay? And was having phantom limb pain, felt like there was still something there and it hurt. And what the experimenter did, I wish I could remember the name of the guy. He's an Indian name, I believe. He put a mirror uh, in front of the person, how to describe this, uh, not facing him, but facing his good right hand. So when he looked when he basically just looked, he saw his right hand and he saw a reflection of his right hand in the mirror. So it looked like he had two hands. It looked like he had a left and right, but he only was seeing the reflection of the right. And then they would stroke or do things with the right hand. And he'd see the left hand doing the same thing, this imaginary left hand. And the pain went away. So there was some like neurological loop that his brain was in that was causing this phantom limb pain that getting the illusion of having a left hand made it go away. How? Uh, but that's an interesting something. Yeah. Um, or they do things with with uh, virtual reality where they mm-hmm. give you a, virtual, a VR avatar who's standing in front of you and they will do things where they will simultaneously stroke the back of your head with, you know, like a pencil um, while it looks like they're doing that to this, the same thing to your virtual avatar in virtual space. And after a little bit of time, it not only does it feel like you are that virtual thing, but if they do something to the virtual thing that they don't do to you, like strike, you know, like hit the hand of the virtual avatar, you'll react like you got hit. So it messes with your sense of where your body is. So when you think about some of those things, you know, these weird things like our brain just messes up basic things like where you are. (laughs) Yeah. It makes you wonder about some of those kind of vitalistic things about, is it just a, a weird ass brain phenomenon? Mm-hmm. Don't know. Again, yeah. I'm open to it. Yeah. I mean, the old practices, I've done a bunch of reading on Ayurveda, like the ancient Indian science of longevity and life and health. Uh, according to them, there's constitutions and like that's their one of their like, interpretations of like vitalistic life force. And Mm. you'll find that based on your constitution, you do better in certain things, you do worse with certain things. And not everyone, but for a lot of people, it lines up very closely with their actual experience. And if you explore some of the other constitutions, you'll notice that it just doesn't line up, doesn't match with who you are personality wise or tendency wise or whatever it is. Well, so that's a cool thing. So, you know, you've got a personality typing system or you've identified different personality types for simplifying. And if we don't necessarily know why 
there are these seemingly limited number of types to then apply something like a, a vitalistic explanation is a fine thing to say. It's kind of irrelevant. I mean, the ident- the thing is, you know, you identify these types, that's all you really need. But boy, if you want to, you know, get people to come to your your Ayurvedic school uh, or take your Ayurvedic classes, then you're going to want to, you know, sexy it up a little bit. So, <laughs> um, and uh, and I'll give you another one, just for the moment, but I want to go back to unintended consequences in a sec. Mm-hmm. But um, I was invited to a dinner party one night bunch of physicists on one end and a bunch of new agey people on the other side. And this was a setup by the physicists. Their goal was to prove that the new agey people were completely full of it. And no one knew this going in. I had no idea. And I'm not sure which, I think they thought of me as on the physics side of the equation. And at one point I said, um, do you know one of the things that I do? And they go, what? I go, I do a thing called Kabbalistic healing. And they're like, what? I go, it's a non-physical, non-energetic thing that seems to create significant changes in the people that I'm working with. And they looked at me like I was crazy. I said, but I'm going to give you a a weird non-physical or non-mystical answer for what I think it does. So the analogy I'm going to use is when we're interacting with another person, we have a sort of mm, relationship that involves a number of things, including body language, just the way we hold ourselves, the way we present ourselves, things that we don't think of that we perceive. And um, I like to say that the relationship is kind of like taking two regular, you know, single ladders and putting them up against each other to form an inverted V. And we're supporting each other in a certain way. You know, the fact that we we relate in a certain way is a familiar thing. And we, again, create this relationship by putting these ladders up against each other. My job when I'm doing this Kabbalistic healing thing is to hear how you've created that ladder structure. And then I just do like these internal things. And all that really means is sort of, oh boy, if you imagine relaxing on a floating raft in a in very lightly, gently moving waters, that makes a neurological change in your system. Yeah. Okay. It has nothing to do with the other person. I've just changed something in my system. So my job in this Kabbalistic healing thing is to do something similar to that, do some internal change that just upsets the relationship of these two ladders. And so their ladder has nothing to balance itself again against, mm-hmm. and something has to shift in that process, in that relationship. Yeah. And these are all metaphors and analogies. But what I can tell you is it's reliably consistent that when I do this internal thing, you feel something different. And my only explanation is in the same way that we, well, in the same way that there are a lot of things that we be, that we're aware of at an unconscious, a non-conscious level that we respond to uh, in a deliberate way, but we're not aware of the fact that we just responded to this non-conscious thing. Because from an evolutionary perspective, we never needed to learn that there was an animal with two eyes in the front of its head, right at the edge of my peripheral vision and figure out if that's food for us or if we're food for it. If there's something staring at you like that, just get the fuck out of the way. So, uh, and figure it out later. So, you know, it could be things like that where we just aren't, or at least Western modern people aren't paying attention to these sort of nonverbal, non something bits of information that we get that do impact us. And so anyway, you know, that's like, again, this is just an experiment of finding simple explanations for what can look like magical stuff. And look, there's no one who would want more than I to find something magical. I mean, that would be a blast, but you know, it's a 
tough, hard road to hoe or tough bar to clear. So anyway. Um, yeah, well, that's largely what these systems did. They didn't have the same instrumentation we have today. So they had to look and say, like, notice the subtle things that are not as apparent. And mm. because we rely so heavily on instrumentation and devices and technology these days, we look for that. And if we don't have it, we're kind of lost. But yeah. back then they didn't have any of that. So they were very attuned to the small things and they try to build their whole system around those. Yeah, I think that's true. But I, and I think there's also just like, if you think there's a, there's a challenge with cross-cultural stuff because there's cultural metaphors that we, that outside of the culture we can take as being um, le- not legit. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, not, not um, metaphoric, like real in a way where it could just be a metaphoric thing. So the idea of, of, of some energies, for example, in some other cultures explanation of something that may just be the best word that we could find to translate mm-hmm. something. And yeah. what they mean is something very, very different, you know, hard to say. All right. So my apologies. I mean, boy, this, I've talked more about that more during this than any, any conversation I've had. I'm going <laughs> to desperately want to stop. So please let's go on back to the unintended consequences part that you saw from certain biohacks. Sure. Well, the first one is that because of the way we operate in the reductionist paradigm, we tend to say, we want this outcome. We know this pathway will help us get there. We'll use certain drugs say metformin is one that's been in the news recently for its longevity purposes and its potential benefits doing all kinds of things related to autophagy and just overall life extension. And we think we understand the causal relationship between change this pathway, these biomarkers, and get this outcome. And then decades after it's been in use, all of a sudden we start uncovering a bunch of new side effects that we didn't realize were there the whole time. And so by taking the approach of just like going in and trying to hack this one little system, this one component of the system, it results in a lot of downstream effects that go on for decades in some cases and eventually get noticed. So on the metformin one, I mean, I was aware that it was sort of the bell of the longevity ball about five years ago, but I never bothered trying to take it. And But I haven't heard what's uh, what are some of the side effects that people are now seeing now that there's been a handful of, quote, biohackers who've been uh, pumping metformin and include in that what metformin was originally for. So people have a context for that. Yes. Yeah, so metformin is still a drug used to treat diabetes and keep blood sugar under control. That's its primary use. And in the last handful of years, the off-label use has been to promote life extension. And the new side, I say new in quotes, because the side effect that came up in the studies, I think two or so, three months ago, was that uh, people taking it can have uh, offspring with birth defects. Oh, just that. Yeah. So like a little minor inconvenience there. And there's a bunch of others, like a lot of question marks around it. It permanently can impair your ability to absorb and assimilate one of the B vitamins and the half-life. We know what it is for the drug, but it seems to have other impacts on the body, such as changing the anabolism, catabolism, tissue building, tissue breakdown state longer than the half-life. So it's oh, a little unsure what's going on there. And that's just for one particular drug that's been very well studied over the decades. And right. only now are we understanding that it can have these really drastic side effects. There's some guys who invited me into an or, into a group uh, that's all about longevity. And they say, you know, we invite the people who are doing the cutting edge research. Don't you want to hear about this stuff 20 years before anyone else does? I, was, I said, no, I want to hear about it 20 minutes after the human trials are done. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> along those same lines, another one that's 
gaining popularity is transhumanism and CRISPR-Cas9 or directly modifying the genome of humans. What could go right? Yeah, exactly. That's a better question. What could go right? And that's more and more popular. And we don't even fully understand the genome in its entirety because until two or so decades ago, we believed that there was a bunch of junk DNA, the microRNA, and we discovered that actually, no, those have really important functions. Like those are have to do with your epigenetics or the expression of your genes, and you don't want to just ignore those. Yeah, I um, uh, I, you know, I mean, all of this is kind of predicated on, on a rather comical idea that you could that, and there are certain times where you can do this, where you can have, make a very small intervention that will have no unforeseen consequences, and humans are horrible at misrepresenting and underestimating the potential of unforeseen consequences in, in all aspects of human endeavors. I mean, I sometimes drive around and I look and I go, I can't see one thing that we've done that hasn't had more harmful repercussions than beneficial ones. It's pretty wild. And of course, we will only prove that to be permanently true if we all just set off nukes and crush ourselves in some way. So then that will be the proof that we are a bunch of morons <laughs> um, who thought we were smart. Which is which is a problem. Um, I don't know if you know anything. Another another one of those drugs that was uh, kind of the bell of the longevity ball was um, rapamycin. Yep. What do you know about that? Because I know nothing about it. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. It's also one of those, and it's an immunosuppressive drug. Which oh, there's geez. yeah, there. I mean, that's how it works. That's why it has such good life extension properties. For me, it seems way too risky for most people. I don't know why you'd want to take that when there's a lot of other things, lower hanging fruit that are safer and don't have side effects. In fact, they have side benefits. So to me, it just doesn't make sense. It's another one of those that I see people talking about it and taking it. And if you want to take something, there's things that have much better safety profiles. Thanks. I appreciate that. And I want to ask you the things that have better safety profiles. So I'm going to put inject this and then we'll do that. I was experimenting with uh, nicotinamide riboside and not with nicotinamide mononucleotide, um, which for people who know them better as NR or NMM and, uh, or NMN. And neither of them really did anything for me. I didn't notice anything. And the idea is that just taking niacin has a better impact on those pathways. And annoyingly, I seem to not, this is a case where I don't have an immunity to placebos. I have a hypersensitivity to niacin. Like if I was taking 25 gram pills, I'd get a big flush and it never changed. I mean, I did this for months and I never acclimated to it. I was really kind of bummed because that one looks like maybe there's a there there. And niacin is about as not a big deal uh, as an intervention goes, as one can think of, but doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I hope you're not taking it in the gram range because a huge dose no, no. is considered. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. 25 milligrams is what I meant to say. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> 25 grams. That's ridiculous. An ounce of niacin. That's pretty funny. <laughs> but no, yeah, it, it just knocked me on my butt. And uh, so that was an interesting one. So let's go back to, and this list leads us into the section of our conversation about being, uh, what was your term that you're not now a biohacker, you're a bio... Harmonizer. Harmonizer. I love you. So uh, let's talk about one of those things that you alluded to that's a milder intervention than uh, an off-label drug that is seemingly doing something. Sure. So the first reason I like to harmonize rather than hack is because, as you alluded to earlier, the body is a system of systems. It's a mm. cybernetic system, meaning that there's no linear cause and effect. When you change one thing, it changes a bunch of other things. And so a lot of the best practices and principles of bioharmony that I've come across seem ridiculous when you call them hacks, such as getting enough sleep, <laughs> such as going on a walk, 
such as learning to build your personal resilience via something such as exposure to extreme temperatures, the sauna, the ice bath, these types of things, they just don't do not fit into the bucket of a biohack, but they are in harmony and they're helping the body do its own processes better and more efficient. Oh, I like it. So, um, you know, and even some of those have become somewhat mythologized. So like I'm thinking about sleep. I had this conversation just the other day with someone on the podcast where the whole idea is, you know, you need to have a pitch black room because that's what our ancestors did, except for the fact that's not what they did, because many of our ancestors lived in places where maybe there was something, a roof over their head, but no walls. And when there's a full moon, the ambient light is pretty damn bright. So, you know, there's that or... Um, there's, I think there's a good amount of mythology around cold plunge stuff, which by the way I do. Cause I, I get, I just can get a kick out of it. I can't say I enjoy it. Cause when I get it, my <laughs> right now, my cold plunge, now that it's getting cold at night here is at about 40 degrees. And when I jump in, I, uh, yell every expletive that I've ever thought of for the first two seconds. And then I kind of get with the groove and I just like, it literally does feel refreshing when I get out. I really enjoy it. And maybe there's other benefits. I don't know. I don't care. Um, I just get a kick out of it. But that one has been seriously mythologized, I think. There's also some very cool properties that are unique to cold and to heat. One that I've noticed personally is when I wear a continuous glucose monitor so I can see how my blood glucose changes throughout the day. And I'll wear that for two weeks or so. I, I noticed that when I take a ice bath in the morning, no matter what I do, my blood sugar will be very stable the rest of the day. So that's uh, one that's not often that's talked about, but it's one a powerful effect that I've noticed. And there's a lot of claims about its effect on the conversion of, let me think, white fat to brown fats and then right. helping with weight loss and that cold is a stressor. So it stimulates the release and production or production and release of norepinephrine. Norepinephrine, yeah, epinephrine, cortisol, all these things and changes your neurochemical state as well. Uh, And I noticed that I feel great when I get out of the cold bath. So that could be it. It could be something else entirely. Is it going to change your life in itself? (laughs) Probably not. You're talking to a guy who uh, was a member of the Polar Bear Club, aka jumping into ice water yep. on New Year's Day, seventeen for 17 years until it was like, eh, I'm done. But um, well, and of course, the joke is that the sauna can do many of the same things. It's like they're both affecting um, heat shock proteins, yeah. from, which is a weird thing to to say that both high temperatures and, and low temperatures affect the same proteins. But yeah. they seem to. And I um, and there's oh, who is it, Brad? Pilon or Pilon, I don't know how, how he says his last name, has a whole book about how heat exposure can be beneficial, mm-hmm. including for weight loss, because it's basically telling your body you don't need to store fat. So yeah. that's it's an interesting idea. I haven't noticed any changes in my body fat or or weight from both you know hot tub saunas and cold plunges. I just like them. Yeah. Well, there's also some cool benefits that I like of the heat, such as the ability to increase growth hormone second to none. From a nice long session in the sauna, so but you want to make sure. So why am I still five five? Guess too late on that train. <laughs> That's the one, and like you alluded to, the heat shock proteins, the Foxo four, like all these have beneficial longevity effects. So I think rather than taking these designer molecules, yeah. start off with the lifestyle basics. Whether it's getting outside for a walk, it's seeing the sun or it's going in the sauna, these all can have disproportionate effects. And ultimately going for a walk isn't that hard to do. It doesn't need to take that long. 
And in my blood sugar tracking experiment, I noticed that that had the biggest impact of anything on my blood sugar. Better than any supplement I've taken, better than the cold plunge, better than the sauna. By far and away, a five-minute walk after my meal made a huge difference. And I just saw a New York Times article came out recently. It said two minutes of walking can make a difference. So it doesn't need to be long. No, I think that key thing, though, is uh, it is right after a meal um, doing that. I've been trying to do that. Mostly, uh, I've been walking more lately because we've got a dog. And Mm -hmm. I get up before my wife does. So I'm the 6 a.m. dog walker. So we'll go out for half an hour to an hour. Um, again, you know, hasn't changed anything about uh, my body composition, but it is really enjoyable. And when he's not chasing squirrels or bunnies, you know, it's just delightful as well. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to get my shoulder reattached to my body after this morning's bunny event because it caught me totally off guard. But I remember reading this years ago that they had done an experiment just, you know, after people had eaten a high fat meal and one group went and took a walk right after the meal and the other group didn't. And then they just drew blood and you could just see the difference between fat mobilization from the people who had taken a walk where it cleared the bloodstream very quickly versus uh, those who hadn't taken the walk where it was just hanging out there for like 18 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what, so I love that you got the the 24-hour glucose monitor. I've never felt the urge to do that one, but it is entertaining. What are the other things you've done that are that kind of experimentation? And of course, what are the other harmonizing things that you found that are um, for real from your experience? Yeah. So first of all, another core principle of harmonization is that everything in the body serves a purpose. We might not understand that purpose yet, but (laughs) if you get things removed, you choose to ignore things that comes at your own peril and you may or may not suffer a consequence from it. One that sounds very simple. And to me, it was a life-changing one I discovered was recognizing that emotion plays a vital role in understanding the circumstance I'm in and like what kind of response I should give instead of just suppressing the way I feel like exploring it and trying to trace back where it comes from and why I feel a certain way. Is it too personal to ask for an example? Yeah. So when I get in a conflict with my partner and something really bothers me and I just decide to storm off because it seems like the only logical thing to do. And then when I dissect him, like, why did I storm off? I didn't have to storm off. I should have been more present. I should have told her that this really upsets me. And it seemed inaccessible at the time. And then I was able to trace that back to previous life experiences and find the root of that and try and understand why I felt that way and give myself permission to feel that and to understand it and to accept it. And once I accepted it, as strange as it sounds, I feel less intensely when things come up now. Mm. Yeah. I I refer to that as um, playing the movie frame by frame. Mm. So, you know, you just like look at it one moment at a time and see what was I thinking? What belief did I have that led to this behavior? Uh, what was the thought? Then what was the feeling that that engendered? And what was the belief that then followed that one? I've, I've done yeah. similar things. I had, I had, my, I'll tell you my favorite one. Um, Lena, my wife had asked me to make some sort of behavioral change. I don't know what it was. Let's call it putting the toilet seat down, which mm-hmm. is not my thing. Cause I like to sit down when I pee. It's the only chance I get to sit down sometimes. So, but whatever it was, and I'm not, I don't tend to ask for behavioral changes. It's just not my thing to ask people to do something different that way. And so I was really angry for whatever reason that she'd asked me to do this thing when I would never do anything like that. And I thought, all right, so she's asking me to do this thing. I don't do it, but what do I do instead? Mm -hmm. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that Lena likes to keep things really neat. And our house is 
pretty neat. But like her desk at the end of the day, clean. My desk at the end of the day, where's the desk? So, <laughs> um, so I realized that, you know, there are a couple of places in the house where I have piles of stuff hmm. and she endures my piles of stuff. And there's no doubt that her having to see those multiple times a day is, and, and not, you know, ask me to leave is a much more amazing thing uh, and takes much more something than whatever it would take for me to figure out whatever that behavioral change was that yeah. she asked for. And then I immediately went and apologized and said, you know, look, I can't promise that I'm going to do it, but I will do the best I can. Feel free to remind me. But yeah, but, uh, but also, you know, I can't thank you enough for putting up with my sloppiness where I know that must be unbearable for you. And yeah. she uh, was very sweet. She said, I know that you have limited places where you do it. And as long as it's in those limited places, I can, I'm okay with that. If it extends past there, that's going to be a problem. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, so to your point, yeah, it was not, there was no, we didn't need a therapist. We didn't need to process our feelings. I mean, I just took care of by recognizing the pattern that I had and why I had it. So um, that's a great one. I appreciate you pointing that one out. Yeah. Any, any other, any other harmonizing things that you've done other than emotional? Yeah, I can run, like I can run through some of my like yeah. principles of bioharmony. Please. So the first is self-sovereignty. And that is the idea that you don't want to outsource anything that you want to keep long-term or at least let it decay and atrophy. That can be <laughs> your memory or in the case of zero, that could be your arches. <laughs> I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the next one is oppositional consequences. When you fight the body and you suppress things, however that is, whether it's a natural practice or it's a intervention, there will be consequences and you have to accept that there could be consequences whenever you undergo one of those types of things. People love to ignore the potential negative side effects because they have the fantasy they're going to get the only the positive ones. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. it doesn't usually work. It's what that we way. do. I mean, you know, we we imagine this future happy state. And then if we think that there's a way of getting there, we're going to lock on to that and ignore all the contradictory information. That's why there are certain people who fill up workshop rooms every weekend in the hotel rooms and get tens of thousands of dollars per person for, you know, based on that. Yeah. The third principle is the principle of innate intelligence, that the body really knows how to self-regulate, return to homeostasis, to rebuild, to regenerate. And on the opposite end, that by taking certain interventions, we're assuming that we know better than the body and that that will lead to a better outcome. And there's instances when you want to go out and make sure you do the right thing and the body gets stuck in a loop or something. And then, it, then you need some outside intervention. But for a lot of time, like a lot of things such as a broken arm, the cast is not repairing the arm. It's your right. body that's repairing it and we're just supporting it. Here's where I'll poke at it again. The flip side is there are certain things where like I was taking a walk with a friend of mine and she said, I'm just trying to listen to my body. So I, you know, I, I can eat the right things. And I just burst into hysterics. And I said, I know what your body wants to eat. French fries, ice cream, chocolate cake. Um, you just have the idea that if you quote, listen to your body, you'll end up eating some things that right now you don't enjoy that will then change your body into something that when you look in the mirror, you're going to like it. And that's pretty funny because if you ask everyone on the planet, do they like what they see in the mirror? You won't find anybody who says yes, honestly. So one of the functions of being human is looking in the mirror and going, mm -hmm. <laughs> or, you know, some yes. variation thereof. Um, so, so that was an interesting one. Cause I think what you're saying, and please correct me if I'm getting this wrong, is that there are times where something does get out of whack 
and your body will show that in some way. I'm thinking of, um, this one's an easy one. Our dog um, suddenly had two warts, one on right inside of its lip and one on the outside of his lip, and it's a papillomavirus. And um, he just didn't have the antibodies for that. And it just, you know, plays its course in the course of three weeks or so. Um, but so here's this thing that in this case, didn't you don't need to do anything about it. The body will take care of itself. But there are things that can pop up for whatever reason, some environmental impact, some emotional thing you're doing, whatever it is, um, stress and however we define stress, that could cause your body to get out of whack and stay out of yeah. whack until you do make some intervention. So what you're yes. implying is that if given the opportunity, ah, that's what I'm saying, given the opportunity, more often than not, many things will, can take care of themselves. Now, there are many things that just get out of whack and they're out of whack. So if you get, you know, glioblastoma, you got a brain tumor that's most likely incurable. If you get, you know, there's a handful of things that that's just the way it is because these things don't work perfectly. They're not designed to keep us alive forever. And so, you know, that's, that's a whole other, whole other aspect of it is so given all the right circumstances, it will do the best it can. Let me, I'm going to say it that way. See if you disagree with that one. Um, But sometimes, you know, you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's precisely it. And there's a lot of things the body is capable of doing that are miracles when they happen. And we don't can't explain them yet exactly how they're working in terms of like regenerative abilities. But yes, for the most part, you have to support the body or you should support the body and recognize that it's just a, it's a biological organism and it's doing its best, but it's not it's perfect. Not to- it's not designed to, it's it's definitely not designed to do the thing that you want. It's definitely not designed to keep you looking like you did when you were in your teens or twenties, um, or I mean for some of us, um, or you know, continuing to be able to perform that way up until in whatever way perform means for you. Um, I was not going the way that some people just took it by my qualifying it. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, into your whatevers. Um, I mean, again, we're going to die at some point. Um, things, you know, skin gets saggier, muscles get smaller, um, unless you're, unless you're juicing in or variations thereof. And I guess perhaps, you know, the hardest intervention or the hardest thing to do with that, um, maybe for some people is being okay with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's the whole longevity sector is fighting that idea. And while it's true that we will die at some point, there's things you can do that will drastically speed up your arrival at that destination (laughs) and also ways to slow it down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And some of these, you know, they could not be more, more simple. Like you were saying, get some sleep, get outside, see the sun, um, you know, eat things that you enjoy Um, to a certain, and and even the eating thing, I have a friend who had um, uh, breast cancer and she was living with somebody who was a vegan something chef and was just feeding her all this green stuff and like every healthy thing to try and cure her. And every two weeks she would call me and I would say, oh, is it time? And she would say, yes. And we would go out to the local donut shop and I would buy one of everything they made and say, just take as much or as little of of any of these that you want. Basically, here's the the buffet enjoy. And I said, which do you think is better for you? How much fun this couple of hours is eating however many donuts you want, or, you know, thinking that you, if you don't have a green drink tomorrow, you're going to die. And she said, yeah, the stress of that is probably worse than the fun of this. Oh, absolutely. And that's also one of the like ancient principles of rhythm and pulsation. Like Mm. the thing is, if you do one thing long-term, your body will compensate. It will downregulate enzymes. It'll change neurotransmitter baseline levels, all that kind of stuff so that you adapt to be more efficient in your 
in your current state. So if you every once in a while change things, you go out and you enjoy yourself, not only are you getting that connection and you're getting like the experience of like being a, a modern human, but you're also doing your body favors, even if it's a sub subpar like nutrition for, in that example. Yeah. I go, my thing with donuts is um, I find myself craving them every now and then. And when it gets to a point that it's like, okay, um, I can't drive by this donut shop without getting one. Then I will go do that. But um, but that's it. And I don't and I, so I don't have very many donuts per year any longer. And I used yeah. to eat, eat a lot of donuts because yeah. donuts awesome. They're, yeah. they're one of the four basic food groups. They are pretty great. And you were <laughs> mentioning your friend earlier who yeah. was trying to listen to her body, and her body was telling her to eat ice cream and maybe donuts and and junk like chocolate that. Cake. Chocolate cake. Yeah, only about chocolate cake. Yeah, chocolate cake. I mean, there's all kinds of things that fall into that category that are non-negotiables. They should be in everyone's diet for the sheer enjoyment, if nothing else. <laughs> but that leads into the fourth principle of bioharmony, and that is biofeedback amnesia. So the fact that like, how modern humans have lost the ability to access like what's actually going on inside of us. Uh -huh. And if you're listening to your body, it might tell you, sure, grab that donut. That'll taste great. And then you might eat that donut. And an hour later, you will notice that, oh, okay, my blood sugar spiked and then crashed. And now I just need a nap. I need a nap for at least a half an hour. And then instead of weighing whether or not you want that, you're weighing the want versus the total cost. Mm. And that can lead to like a very different equation in terms of like the overall want. My, my favorite version of that is you eat something, typically something like scrambled eggs. And then for completely unrelated reasons, you end up with a stomach bug. So you get the, you know, get some sort of stomach flu. And if this happen in close enough proximity temporarily, you won't be able to eat scrambled eggs again for years Yeah, because you're, brain will have put two and two together and said, Ooh, it must be because of the scrambled eggs. Cause it's always looking for something. Mm -hmm. um, and it probably had, and it had nothing to do with the scrambled eggs, but I find that one kind of funny. So it's in many ways, the opposite of what you just described, but the, but the one you just described, that's a really good one. Cause we, you're right. I mean, we aren't good at um, we're always you know looking for patterns, but we're not good at identifying certain patterns, especially if there's enough of a time gap between the cause and the effect. Yeah. And there's a lot of things, especially with nutrition. There's a usually a short term, a medium term, and a long term. Like mm -hmm. for example, when I'm assessing someone's core, I can assess it one day, and then I can tell them try not eating gluten for a week. And even if they're not gluten sensitive, you can actually feel a difference in their ability to activate their core uh, after they completely take another diet. And you won't necessarily know that you don't feel it because you most most of us eat gluten all the time. But like their body notices a difference and is able to like exert more force when they made that change. That's really interesting. How much, um, you know, when it comes to diet and nutrition, or let's use gluten as this example, how how much individual variability do you see? Oh, tremendous. There's a really fantastic book that I like called Biochemical Individuality by <laughs> Roger Williams, I believe it is. And he goes through the body systematically and goes through every organ, every enzyme, as much as you possibly can, like that he knew of back then when it was written a couple of decades ago. And he shows that there's like tremendous differences between people, like up to 50 fold differences in enzyme activity, stomachs that are 
on either end, like one is tiny and the other is three times bigger. And so there's a lot of variation. And that's part of like what all of this is about is the bio individuality of everything that like what works great for me might not work at all for you. Yeah. This is, this is something that is so problematic for humans who want a simple solutions, like give me the ABC, give me the plan and let me just stick to it because we, we like things simple. Um, but man just is not like that. The first paleo FX conference that I went to, I was saying, you know, you all think that everyone should be eating a shit ton of meat. And, um, I actually have a genetic disorder and I I don't taste the savory flavors in meat. So it just tastes like metallic mush. Uh So, uh, that ain't going to happen. And, um, and, and, and of course the joke is while Every they had a panel discussion with like ten people who were the paleo experts at the time, and each one of them was basically trying to convince people that their version of paleo was the way you had to eat, and no one acknowledged that each one of them had a different version of paleo. I mean, they acknowledged that, <laughs> but they weren't acknowledging that it was that there wasn't going to be a resolution to the fact that you know not no one was going to suddenly have uh, present something where the other nine people were going to go, "Yep, you're right, I was mistaken." Yeah. So you yeah. know, each one was a different thing. And it was so much of it was based on their own personal experience more than any sort of research or data collection, um, which is problematic. Well, that's one of the big issues in the health and wellness world is that people are on this journey themselves. They explore, they try different things and it works great for them. So then they yeah. start researching it. They fall victims, the confirmation bias. And then they realize that this is the only way humans should operate. And then they tell everyone else that, and they create like highly successful books and media libraries and that spreads. And you don't understand like with only seeing that you don't understand the whole backstory. And what we were just talking about the individuality of everything. Yeah. So uh, are there any other principles that we have left out? Well, the last one we've talked about a bit, and that is critical application. And critical application is doing the research yourself, not just relying on any one source, including Mm -hmm. everything we say today in every conversation, (laughs) and then going in and trying things where it's safe. Don't take our word for it, but go actually try it yourself where it's safe and notice what you get or don't get. And take notes, log it down, and practice all the principles of harm reduction just to make sure that just because this worked for a bunch of other people doesn't mean it will or will not work for you. So you learn, implement and reflect. Dude, which part of just tell me what to do? Did you not hear? <laughs> the new die book is coming any day now. <laughs> I'm on the, I don't know when I'm going to get hit by a bus diet. <laughs> so, you know, when, when the donut calls me, the donut calls. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, what's actually really funny, the hardest thing for me in situations like that is I'll have the donut and I know after like, I only want like two bites, but I hate throwing food away. <laughs> well, I'm the opposite way. Once I get started with anything, I finish it and look for all the scraps and eat those too. So my best bet is just to avoid bringing all that stuff in the house to begin with. Yeah. See, I don't, I'm, I'm not a bingy kind of guy. We've had a, a pint of Ben and Jerry's in our fridge for, I think, nine years. And we each had, you know, a few bites and then it's, I, I don't know why it's still sitting there, frankly, but I, but I can do just the parts that I like, but it, it is very hard for me. Like I went out with some new friends for uh, dim sum on uh, this past weekend. And it was really hard for me to like leave something on a plate that I liked. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I ate it. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and it was not gastrointestinally satisfying uh, in a, a few hours later, but I had such a good time when I was doing it that it made up for it. Yeah. 
So, which is, which is part of the principle we've talked about, you know, that's an interesting thing is that some of what we've talked about really is a little hedonic. It's the value of enjoyment is I think greatly overlooked. Yeah. Like genuine enjoyment, not just, you know, sort of temporary getting a buzz off something, but something, you know, that really is, even if it's not necessarily great for you, the pleasure part is, will outweigh the, you know, temporary negative consequences. Absolutely. Like when I'm going out and spending time with friends, I have no problem eating things I won't usually or stretching the window in which I'm consuming calories a little longer than than usual because ultimately like that social connection yeah. and the enjoyment, all of that's going to outweigh any temporary lapse of my usual routine. Yeah. I think that's a good one. Um, so is there anything we, first of all, this has been a blast and thank you for diving into my long winded um, sort of ex, um, examination of some of these ideas. Cause I, cause frankly, you know, again, like one of the things I appreciate about you is that you can look at this stuff from different angles and land somewhere that is um, um, how do I want to put it? maybe more accessible to human beings. And the fact that you just continue to experiment, of course, is a really fun one. Um, so of course, I'm always curious what you discover either that's working or just some idea that is worth investigating. So anything that we left out? One thing that I recommend is if you're trying to understand and learn about a subject, go around and pick out a handful of books about that subject from all different perspectives. And then you can see what they agree on, what they disagree on, and you can explore each of those avenues yourself. But if you're just relying on one interview, one book, one YouTube video, you're never going to get the full picture and you're going to be prey to all kinds of biases. Yeah. You're well, what you're prey to is your wallet getting empty. Um, I mean, that's, that's the biggest one. It, it, it really does amaze me the number of people who spend inordinate amounts of money uh, going to workshops or doing various things um, year after year after year, despite the lack of demonstrable benefits they've received. Um, and because the sunk cost is so high, if they yeah. realize that what they've been doing is wasting their money, it's almost more humiliating and upsetting than just continuing to do something that doesn't work. Yeah. Oh, humans and their minds. They're so silly. Oh, and the one last thing is with a lot of these lifestyle practices, these like healthy bioharmonization habits, instead of having unintended side effects, a lot of them have unintended benefits. <laughs> so if you improve your sleep, that's going to translate to better performance. You're going to show up better, less emotionally reactive in your relationships and you don't need to do all of these things and spend 18 hours a day optimizing your life to start feeling and seeing and noticing a difference. You can start small with a few minute walk after a meal or trying maybe blackout curtains and realize that yes, some nights in the natural world, the moon will be brighter. And if you can't get that, it's not the end of the world. Like you'll sleep just fine, maybe a little, a little worse than normal, but then you can bounce right back from that and adapt. I love it. So Egads, I'm trying to think where I wanted to go. Since I can't think of anywhere, we can wrap it up. So Nick, if people want to find out more about uh, BioHarmony and what you're doing, et cetera, how would they do that with you? Yeah. So they can go ahead and reach out to me on my website, nickurban.me, and that'll bring you to a Linktree-like page where you can see the website, the podcast that I host, and my social channels, all that stuff. And if they want to reach out to me directly, the socials are great, or they can fill out the contact form on, on my website. 
And I personally read and respond to every email I get. So if it takes a couple of weeks, <laughs> don't take it personally, but I love hearing from everyone and I look forward to ongoing conversations. Awesome. Well, I hope people do take you up on that invitation uh, because again, you know, we are all, any of us who are health and fitness minded are always looking for something that will make a difference in our life and to find someone that you can um, reach out to and at least lean on to point you in a good direction if, if they don't have an answer um, is a very valuable thing. And you're doing a great service by being someone who's able to look at these things um, logically and critically um, and still be you know really one of those people who likes to investigate um, and do more than the average bear in that process. So much, much appreciated. Uh, and for everyone else, thank you for being here is the simplest thing I can say. And as always, a reminder, go to www.join the movement movement.com to find all the previous episodes like and share and thumbs up and bell icon on youtube etc you know the drill on that but more if you have any requests if there's anybody you think should be on the podcast let me know if you want to tell me you thought something was great or that you think i have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome i'm open to that as well in fact i'm open to finding someone who jumps on the podcast who thinks i'm completely full of it that would be a blast um, i've been trying to get some people to do that but they seem to be resistant. Um, and I always want to send one email back to them after they tell me they don't want to be on the podcast with one word, which is uh, scared, but I haven't done that yet. So anyway, uh, you can drop an email to me at move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. But speaking of moving, and maybe you'll do this after a meal, go out, have some fun, and live life feet first. <laughs>